A decade of discovery. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. A robotic explorer on Mars is celebrating 10 years on the Red Planet. NASA's Curiosity rover launched from Cape Canaveral in 2011 and landed on Mars in August 2012. Its mission is to explore the geology of Mars and determine if the planet ever contained conditions favorable to life in a region called Gale Crater. Despite a decade on the planet, there's no sign of the robot slowing down. We still have a lot in the in the tank to keep going, and so when, when will be the end, we don't quite know. But the really exciting news is that we we still have a ton in the tank to keep exploring Gale Crater. Then the launch of NASA's Artemis 1 mission is less than two weeks away, and the Space Coast is bracing for an influx of spectators. The tourism folks are also expecting somewhere between at least 100,000 visitors to the Space Coast for for this launch. That's ahead on Are We There Yet from 90.7 WMFE News. For the past 10 years, NASA's Curiosity rover has been exploring the geology of Mars, specifically an area called Gale Crater. Curiosity builds upon the scientific and engineering knowledge of previous Red Planet rovers and aims to help us answer key questions about life outside our own planet. So what has Curiosity learned, and what's ahead after a decade of discovery so far? We're joined by Amy Williams, an assistant professor of geology at the University of Florida and a member of the Curiosity Rover's science team. Amy, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for inviting me back. It's always a joy to be on the show. Uh, it's always great to have you back on the show to talk about Mars, especially when we're celebrating 10 years of discovery uh, with the Curiosity Rover. As I mentioned, it landed a decade ago. Let's let's step back 10 years. Why was this rover so different from any others that we sent to Mars? Really excellent question. Um, so Curiosity was sort of the next generation of Mars rovers. Um, prior to Curiosity, we had the Mars Exploration Rovers Spirit and Opportunity, um, which really raised the the benchmark for for what we could do on Mars with robotic exploration. Um, you know, even previous to them, Sojourner demonstrated that you could drive a rover on Mars. Um, the Exploration rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, were able to find extensive evidence for water on Mars, and um, they actually, you know, greatly exceeded their timelines uh, for how long we thought those missions could run. So we, you know, they were had three month prime missions, and they went for years. <laughs> in in one case, over a decade. And so with Curiosity, um, I believe that the the so the name for it is Mars Science Lab. But I think that MSL originally stood for Mars Smart Lab because the the point was that you could put an entire analytical chemistry suite um, on a rover and send it to Mars. And the real challenge was getting uh, a vehicle big enough that you could put those instruments on and then building a landing system that could accommodate such a large vehicle. Mm -hmm. So the thought process, Amy, was, you know, back then there wasn't this idea that we could immediately get samples back to Earth. So because we didn't have that capability, let's just bring the lab to Mars. That's that's kind of the biggest difference between these, right? Is that you're bringing an app like a chemistry lab to the surface of Mars, which, as you alluded to, was very difficult, wasn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you can't bring the rocks, you know, to our labs and the lab to Mars, absolutely. And um, I think that lessons learned 
from curiosity have really fed into future Mars missions and, and current missions as well, that those lessons learned have been just so integral to designing missions that can address our, our most fundamental questions about Mars. Mm-hmm. So with that said, uh, Curiosity has brought a chemistry lab to the surface of Mars. Um, Ten years ago, what was its primary objective? What was it looking for with, with all that equipment? So the prime objective and goal for Curiosity was to search for habitable environments on Mars. So an environment where life would want to live if life ever arose on Mars. And so the, the big things that we tend to look for when you want to find a habitable environment is evidence for water, uh, the presence of carbon, and then an energy source that um, picture like a microbe, like a bacterium could use for its metabolism. And so those were sort of the big things that we needed to look for in the given environment to say, yes, this was once habitable in the past. And what was some of the equipment that was on board that, that helped kind of uncover that. So Curiosity has this really fantastic instrument suite that's still functioning today, 10 years later. Um, So we have uh, several camera systems that enable us to take sort of landscape images as well as really up close and personal sort of almost hand lens uh, scale pictures of rocks and soils. Um, We have several chemistry instruments, um, including the ChemCam, which has the uh, laser. Everyone sort of like envisions uh, this this laser shooting out of this rover. Um, we have the the SAM instrument, which can detect organic carbon. It can measure the isotopes of a variety of um, uh, stable isotope systems. Um, it can do a bunch of stuff. And then we have uh, also the Chemin instrument, which could evaluate the mineralogy of the, the rocks that we're exploring, as well as um, other instruments that, that are able to um, assess um, the, the weather and climate. We have RAD, we have REMS. Um, so we have all of these, this sort of complementary suite. So it's not just chemistry necessarily, but sort of all the instruments you need to answer that question of, was this environment habitable in in the ancient past? Mm-hmm. And and this might be a very difficult question for you to answer, Amy. But what are some of the most interesting or intriguing findings that Curiosity has found over these past ten years? Can you yeah, can you even I, identify a few? Can I? Yeah. Can I list this and take up your whole podcast? Yes. <laughs> um, if I have to narrow it down, um, I would say that the the fact that we have identified habitable environments in Gale Crater, which is Curiosity's um, exploration region. Habitable environments, places where life would want to live um, if life had ever arisen. And not only were they habitable, but they were so over relatively long geologic time periods. We're talking millions to tens of millions of years. Um, And what's so intriguing about Mars is that the time period in which Mars was habitable was um, very early on and and seemingly similar to the time when life arose on Earth. And so that question, it just sticks with us whether life could have arisen on Mars. And sending curiosity was that first big step in assessing, is there a way to, to identify an environment where that life would live? And, and curiosity has done it again and again um, over these past 10 years. I have to just kind of reiterate how kind of mind boggling this is. I mean, scientists and engineers put a, you know, vehicle-sized rover on another planet and discovered places that life 
could once want to have lived in. I mean, that is mind-bogglingly awesome, isn't it? I think it's one of those things that you hear it and, and you start to accept it just as fact. And and even as a member of the science team, I have to stop myself and think like, we're doing this on Mars and we're doing it right now. I mean, every day we're doing operations with Curiosity and, and with the next Mars rover, Perseverance. We're doing daily rover operations, asking these questions and and not only getting new answers, but of course, it always opens the door to additional questions. Our, our, you know, our, our questions are never uh, answered in full only because new questions arise as we learn more and more about the surface of Mars. You mentioned that Curiosity's, the, the prequel to Curiosity, these rovers that came before it, uh, far outlasted their anticipated time uh, on the Red Planet. Um, I'm wondering what limitations are there on Curiosity? What's powering Curiosity and, and how much time could it have left? Oh, yes. That's that's always the $64,000 question, right? So it is with inflation. Is that higher now? I think it might be. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah. So the, the Murr rovers, you know, they're there. They were solar powered. So um, it was sort of a limitation of charging up those batteries and not having dust accumulate on the solar panels and limit their lifespans. And that's actually the challenge that the InSight lander has faced, not being able to clear those dust panels. So in, in that line of lessons learned from sending missions to Mars, um, in order to power such a, an advanced instrument suite on Curiosity, and the same with Perseverance, um, instead of solar panels, we actually use an RTG, so a radionuclide powered energy source that charges up the batteries. Um, so this means you have way more energy at the beginning of the mission, but the whole point is that the, the power source decays over time. That's how it generates energy. So you do eventually reach a point where you can't heat the, the, you know, survival heaters, you can't, not only can you not do science, but you eventually just can't even move anymore. So there are finite lifespans uh, to these missions, but um, a lot of it's based on modeling about how long we think we can go. We've become very efficient at using our batteries. And so I would say that, um, you know, Curiosity's prime mission, oh, was like a, a one Mars year, so two Earth years. And we've just hit um, 10 Earth years. So we've far exceeded our, our prime mission. Um, we still have a lot in the in the tank to keep going. And so when when will be the end? We don't quite know. But the really exciting news is that we we still have a ton in the tank to keep exploring Gale Crater. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Are We There Yet? from 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Amy Williams, an assistant professor of geology at the University of Florida about Curiosity. She's a member of the Rover's science team, which is celebrating its 10th Earth year on Mars. Uh, Amy, Curiosity has another robotic explorer on Mars right now, Perseverance. We talked a little bit about this at the start of the conversation, but... What lessons have we learned from, from Curiosity and how are those being applied to this new rover and maybe the next rovers to come after Perseverance? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, Curiosity was the first time that we used the SkyCrane landing system to land such a large vehicle on Mars. And you have to, to step back and think about how really terrifying it was for the science and engineering teams to watch the landing because it's totally autonomous. Um, it is all with the onboard computers and it knows what it's supposed to do. And it had never been tried from start to finish before with Curiosity. The first time we tested the whole thing end to end was landing on Mars. And so um, 
you know, of course, the the system worked beautifully. We landed curiosity and, and we used the same system then to land perseverance, um, you know, a, a decade later almost. And it is easy to to say, yes, we've done this before, so we're good. So let's just land this rover and, and get moving. But you really have to step back and take into account the incredible engineering that went into building a delivery system like the Sky Crane to land such a massive vehicle. So some of the things that have changed, um, especially with the landing system, is that we've actually been improving our ability to um, land um, with, with great precision. And so when Perseverance went to land on Mars, it actually had um, uh, in its computer system on board the ability to look at the ground surface, compare with the maps in its database, and direct itself to land uh, in in a, a far more precise area than than the abilities that Curiosity had. So it's really um, awesome to see how our precision landing is is improving, and this will be useful, of course, with future landers and rovers and um, you know, presumably when we send humans to Mars, these kinds of technologies can be leveraged. So yeah, with the landing system, that was one of the big things. Like that's the only way to deliver something this big to Mars. When it comes to the science goals of perseverance, um, is there any difference in, in what Curiosity is doing and what Perseverance is doing in terms of it's scientific discovery. What's the difference between the two? Yes, this is a really great way to to de- uh, sort of demonstrate the the concept of standing on the shoulders of giants to accomplish your goals. So the Mer rovers looked for evidence of water. Curiosity looked for evidence of habitable environments um, where life would want to live. And then Perseverance is actually looking for the rocks that could contain evidence for ancient life. Um, so. Perseverance is exploring Jezero Crater. It is um, collecting samples, not only analyzing samples on the surface, but its purpose is collecting samples for eventual return to Earth. And that is sort of the the really big difference in that, you know, we're planning to return a subset of these cores to Earth with the Mars sample return architecture. So we're not just identifying and characterizing environments on, on Mars just in situ, but performing some of those activities with perseverance with the intent to return samples for us to then kind of marry both worlds of send the lab to Mars, but then bring the rocks back to our terrestrial labs to really ask those deep questions about whether there was life on Mars, how Earth and Mars diverge so much in their evolution as planets. All of these really profound and and deep questions that we just we're just starting to scratch the surface of. And those questions could not even be asked if it wasn't for the work of Curiosity, right? Yes. These rovers, the the landers, the missions that have come uh, prior to these most recent flagship Mars missions, everything is always just building on, on the next step. And that's why you send a mission and then another mission, you know, 10 years later, right? Science is done in these steps. And, and this is one of the best ways to accomplish really extraordinary science. Mm-hmm. You mentioned there is a finite limit to these um, these robotic explorers, but so far Curiosity has far exceeded its planned time on on Mars. There's no signs of slowing. Um, so what's ahead? What are some of the kind of scientific objectives as as this mission moves into the next decade of of discovery? 
It's so exciting to think of because I was on the mission as a grad student when we first launched. And so now being a, a professor at UF and having my own graduate students work on the mission with me is like really fulfilling to see us moving into this next decade in, in both professional and personal ways. So Curiosity has been exploring Gale Crater, um, which is this, it, it's a crater that formed from the impact from a space rock billions of years ago, and then filled in with sediments from uh, lakes and rivers flowing into that crater. And so we've been slowly um, roving up the, the mountain in the middle of the crater, um, informally named Mount Sharp. And by doing this, we've been basically reading each layer of rocks, sort of like pages in a book where you can learn about the history of Mars from, from the rocks that we see in this, in this sequence. And so we've been exploring these regions that were clearly formed by water. These were really habitable environments with rivers and lakes. And as we climb higher and higher, we're moving into a region that's far drier. And so we may be exploring sort of this major climatic shift on Mars where we move from this um, wet, more hospitable world into this increasingly drier Mars. And so that's really the transition we're in now moving up into what we call the sulfate bearing unit. So these rocks that tend to form when you have far more arid conditions. So those are the sort of the next most immediate steps for curiosity in our exploration of Gale Crater. We've been speaking with Amy Williams, an assistant professor of geology at the University of Florida and a member of the Curiosity Rover science team, as well as Perseverance as well. But we're talking about curiosity today. So yeah, we are. Amy, thanks so much for joining us once again. Thank you so much. Still to come, with NASA's Artemis One mission less than two weeks away, the Space Coast is bracing for an influx of spectators hoping to catch a peek at the newest moon rocket. What to expect? That's ahead on Are We There Yet? from 90.7 WMFE News. You're listening to Are We There Yet? from 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. The launch of NASA's Artemis One mission is less than two weeks away, and the Space Coast is bracing for an influx of spectators. While this mission will carry no crew, it's still drumming up lots of interest as NASA launches the SLS rocket and Orion spacecraft for the first time. Emery Kelly reported on the potential tourism impact of this launch. He's a space reporter at Florida Today and joins us now. Emery, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Good to be back. Good to have you. Um, and Emery, I think it's accurate to say public interest in this Artemis One launch is, is quite high, um, but you did some reporting on some of the indicators that this is going to draw a big crowd at the Space Coast. What are these indicators? Yes. Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, it sounds like the uh, tourism folks, uh, tourism officials are definitely expecting, uh, you know, sold out businesses uh, in this case. Several hotels, especially hotels that are as close to uh, Kennedy Space Center as possible, have have sold out. There are companies that are supporting the launch, of course, that have in some cases booked up entire hotels, um, which which makes sense, of course, for their people. But the tourism folks are also expecting somewhere between, well, at least a hundred thousand visitors to the Space Coast for for this launch. And, and that includes folks coming from out of town, Orlando, you know, maybe counties north and, and south of us, but uh, those folks will be clustered in a very tight area from 
Kennedy Space Center down to, we could say, Cocoa Beach, maybe. So that's a lot of people in a in a small area. A hundred thousand, um, at least. That that that's quite a bit, Emery. Um, but but this is far from the only high profile mission that's been hosted on the Space Coast. Can you give us some historical context? I mean, what have crowds been like in the past for for you know other big launches? And and is the expectation that Artemis One will kind of meet that excitement? Yeah. So the the hundred thousand number is absolutely uh, on the very low end. That is more of a, I guess you could say, more of a minimum. It's it's hard to say with any any certainty, of course, what it would be, and and of course you kind of approach it those kind of numbers conservative conservatively. But during the uh, SpaceX's first few missions to return astronauts back to the International Space Station since the shuttle was canceled in 2011, there were for some of those, especially the first two, two crewed missions. Um, and despite the fact it was COVID, there were north of a hundred thousand people for for both of those first two missions. So it's it's pretty fair to say Artemis One will attract uh, over one hundred thousand. We'll see what the final number is for some historical perspective. Um, you know, I've been it's sort of been mentioned around around our newsroom. I wasn't here for it, but when John Glenn went back to space. Uh, on the space shuttle in his in his later years, that allegedly attracted somewhere between five hundred thousand and a million people to the space coast, um, which at the time was a tripling <laughs> of its population. So, uh, you know, it, 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 it's we're not probably not going to see numbers like a million or seven hundred fifty thousand, but it, it would not surprise me to see a few hundred thousand people here for. For Artemis One, and this doesn't even include astronauts. So Artemis Two with astronauts could be quite a bit more high profile, if you will. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make: is that you know this is uncrewed. Um, it might not garner the same um, crowds as such uh, as John Glenn or the final space shuttle flight. But I mean, it's still going to be a substantial crowd, hundred thousand plus people. I mean, what are what are you getting? hearing from tourism leaders and, and county officials about kind of preparations for all of these people that will be here. Yeah. I mean, uh, to, to a point, there's only, there's only so much you can do, I guess. Um, we, by far the most popular place, if I had to guess would be something like Jetty Park, right? The most you can do is kind of limit the number of cars that come in. Um, and, and each place has its own sort of responsibilities on how full it can be. But because these crowds are going to be <clears throat> clustered in a small area to see this pretty big 322-foot rocket, um, it, it, it should it should make things kind of interesting, to say the least. Uh, during the SpaceX's first Falcon Heavy flight in 2018, um, there were folks. It took them took some folks three hours just to leave Port Canaveral after the launch, um, and that was. You know, that was four years ago. So now we have a bigger population. We have more interest in launches. And this is the launch everyone's been waiting for. So it'll be it'll be it'll be pretty packed. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Are We There Yet from 90.7 WMFE News. I'm Brendan Byrne. We're speaking with Emery Kelly, a space reporter at Florida Today, about his reporting on the anticipated crowds here in Florida for the upcoming Artemis One launch. Um, Emery, I was 
those people that were stuck in uh, in traffic after Falcon Heavy, <laughs> as I'm sure you were as, as well. Um, I mean, any any advice for for people uh, who might be coming out and this this is going to be their their first event? I know, just be patient. Uh, <laughs> what other advice may you have? Uh, I, I think there's this misconception, or maybe not misconception, just just it's not very well known, and especially with the size of this rocket you do not have to be standing at one of the gates to Kennedy Space Center in order to see this thing, nor nor should you be there. <laughs> Please <Yeah>. don't do that. <laughs> Please don't go out to the gate. <laughs> um, but it's a big rocket. And I mean, even, even smaller rockets like SpaceX's Falcon 9, you can be uh, as far south as Vero Beach, as far west as Tampa, you know, in, in, in Orlando and still get some kind of view of it. So as long as you're coming to the Space Coast at all, it's okay if you're a few miles away, um, because you're you're already at least ten to twelve miles away from the pad, no matter where you go, unless you have permission to be on Space Center property. Um, so if you find you know somewhere a little bit more inland, like there's Cars Park, for example, or there are dozens of little parks like that, um, you're still going to get a fantastic view, and, and you're going to get all of the the rumble and, and the sounds and, and certainly wherever you are, there will be crowds as well. Mm-hmm. And, and Emory, it's not just spectators, right? I mean, this is surely to bring a lot of news media, right? Reporters and producers are coming to the area. What, what have you found uh, speaking with Kennedy space center about the media interest in, in this launch? Yeah. So it sounds like the press site, the press site folks at, at Kennedy space center have limited this to a thousand media, which is, sort of a from what i've heard that's just a number for the most there they can support um and it sounds like at least 700 media have signed on um you know that's a pretty that's a huge number obviously but you know it's it's further complicated by the fact that these folks also have to if they're foreign nationals right if they're maybe an international broadcasting, you know, news outlet or something like that, then they need to have different types of escorts because they're not U.S. citizens. So it's it's a pretty complicated, it's a pretty complicated setup. Um, and, you know, easily at least 700 media will be, uh, will be at the press site for this one. Including you, right, Emery? Will you be out there? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. Uh, I certainly, uh, I certainly plan on it. <laughs> We've been speaking with Emery Kelly. He's a space reporter at Florida Today and one of at least 700 reporters who will be covering Artemis. <laughs> Emery, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this week's show. But more coverage of NASA's Artemis 1 mission is coming up in the coming weeks as we get closer and closer to T-0 from the Kennedy Space Center, including a conversation next week looking at the historical context of Artemis and what makes this different than our last attempt at going to the moon during the Apollo era of the 1960s and 1970s. Then join me for a conversation in collaboration with our friends and partners at WUCF-TV about the future of Artemis. We'll talk with a NASA engineer about lessons learned from this mission, a planetary scientist about how our understanding of the moon will get us to places like Mars, and someone from Space Florida who will help us understand the economic impact the Artemis program is having here in the Sunshine State. Don't miss any of those episodes. Tune in every week at 6.30 p.m. here on 90.7 WMFE News or 
subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can do that on NPR One, Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll also have all of our space coverage online at wmfe.org slash space. Are We There Yet is a production of 90.7 WMFE News. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.